everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Pillars. Of course, I am Dylan Bowman, and today I have the great pleasure of sharing a fun conversation with Ethan Newberry. That's right, the ginger runner. Ethan Newberry is in the building, and I had an absolute blast turning the tables on him after several appearances on his show, of course, Ginger Runner Live on YouTube, and after having him tell my story through his incredible skill as a filmmaker. I got to turn the camera and the microphone in Ethan's direction and return the favor for once. And it was so, so fun for me. I, uh, I tried to make this episode the definitive how I built this for the Ginger Runner Empire. So Guy Raz doesn't have to do that uh, over on his dinky little podcast. So we went deep on Ethan's history as a creator, hustling, trying to make it as a starving artist in Los Angeles, finding his niche on YouTube, committing to it 100%, and finally being able to pursue his passion and his creative goals as a career. Ethan is such a versatile talent. He's a charismatic personality, but he struggled hard to get to where he's at now. And there is so much to learn from his journey. Um, he does great things for our sport as well. Um, he's got unique perspective on the creative process, dealing with anxiety and self-doubt, building community, the present and future of the creator economy, and much, much more. This is a longer one, so there's not much more to say here in the introduction. I had an absolute blast on this one. I hope you guys enjoy it too. Please welcome the ginger runner, the great Ethan Newberry. Can I say hi to Ryan Thrower since I know he'll listen to this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's 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 start hi, with that. Let's start with that. <laughs> Ethan Newberry, welcome to the podcast. Please say hello to the people and uh, especially hello. Ryan Thrower. Uh, dude, I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am to do this <laughs> podcast with you. One, you're one of my favorite people ever. I'm just freaking honored because you have, you have like stellar guests and you have an angle that no one really has in the podcast scene, being a pro and being an elite, being in the, uh, the space for so long. And I don't know, you bring a super awesome perspective and you have such a cool guest lineup that I'm just, I'm a little nervous to be here. Actually, I feel like a complete imposter syndrome. I don't belong here. Well, dude, it's so fun to turn the tables on you a little bit. And and thank you for that. Uh, very, uh, very nice compliments. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an honor to have you on the show and I'm having a blast doing this and, and much of what I do is inspired by, you know, what you do. And, uh, I think it, you mentioned Ryan Thrower and, and I feel like this is actually kind of a fun place where, where we can start because, you know, um, for those who who aren't familiar, Ryan is is responsible for for editing each and every one of these podcasts, among many other things that he does for us at uh, at Pillars. He is, uh, as I say, the MVP, and uh, he we made the connection to Ryan through you. So why don't you uh, give a glimpse into who Ryan Thrower is and uh, how how his connection with Pillars came to be. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, first, let me just say hi to the man because I know he's probably listening to this podcast, going through the production side of it. He's listening. So Ryan, um, <laughs> I hope 
I hope this doesn't get too long. I'm really sorry. The dude is awesome. Uh, we have mutual friends up here in Washington that introduced us at some point. Um, and we, he, he does video work. He does photography. He does audio stuff. The dude is kind of like the, uh, the the fix it all like he's the yeah. the handyman the swiss that can show army up kind of yeah. swiss thank you that is exactly what i was looking at swiss <laughs> army knife he could do anything and he does it really really well and he's so open to learning and he's dude he's just like the freaking nicest dude ever yeah and he also has a real deep knowledge of beer and, and craft brewery and i mean <laughs> we're, I could talk we're about such that. bad influences on each other it's hilarious <laughs> i can only imagine like yeah. The Rainier FKT having you guys in the same room and talking about beer and he's bringing beers to drink and you're bringing beers to drink. And I'm just yeah. sitting there like uh, just consuming some of the best stuff and listening fly on the wall style. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The dude is great, man. And yeah. his character is really his, his, his big selling point. He's just well, so kind and generous and. It's so funny because we were actually reminiscing about this um, just a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were in California doing some work on on our sort of projects here. And, you know, it was so funny because I was in Seattle with you for the Ginger Runner Presents uh, event at University of Washington in collaboration with Gary Robbins and Ellie Greenwood. And Ryan was there helping you out. And on our drive back down to Portland the next day, Harmony and I were sort of bemoaning the existing podcast producer that I had, had uh, sort of enlisted to to assist us. And uh, it was on that drive home that I uh, I sent you a text and said, hey, do you think Ryan might be you know, a good candidate for somebody to sort of help out with this. And you made the connection. Yeah. And he had never edited a podcast in his life, but like you said, he's a Swiss army knife. So, so shout out to Ryan Thrower. I'm glad we could uh, sort of pat him on the back here uh, on the podcast, but yeah, he is our, uh, our chief uh, content guy at pillars. He takes care of everything and uh, yeah. And including this podcast, but anyway, let's talk about you, bro. What's funny is I just remembered the, that we actually met before I knew we met at mile 95 of Cascade Crest 100. I was right. about to wrap it up. I was delirious. And there's photos of me coming through that last aid station. And he was working it at the time. And he's in the, he's in my Cascade Crest 100 movie at the aid station. And he just like, fl- like flies by in the background. And at one point when he was working with me on a project, he's like, dude, did you know I'm in your Cascade Crest video? Like we met years ago. I'm like What? And he's like, here, pull it up. And he's in the background. I'm like, holy shit. Like we met back in 2015. I didn't even, I didn't live here. We didn't know each other. It was Dude, awesome. It's pretty cool. It's so funny because the exact same thing just happened to us uh, a couple of weeks ago, because I didn't realize that I had met him that year that the wildfires canceled the North face 50. And oh. they did, they did sort of like an ad hoc 50 K group run up at Donner summit where the smoke was a little less terrible. And Ryan was like, Oh yeah. Like, yeah, we sort of like met there and went back and looked <laughs> in my phone and I had a picture of Ryan thrower on my phone from <laughs> November of uh, 2018, like two and a half years before he became like family to us. But anyway, that is so funny. That's funny great. place to start. Anyway, that's great. Let's talk about you, bro. I want to really like go deep on on Ethan Newberry and uh, and the Ginger Runner and kind of start you know from the earliest days or as far back as you feel is relevant and talk a bit about you know 
what you know your childhood was like where ethan newberry the sort of creator and the runner was born um you know so sort of give us give us your life story a little bit or what what puts you on the path that you ultimately took oh man i've been on this earth for so many years dylan i don't know which one to start at i i think just growing up in the northwest you have this connection to the woods the mountains um pretty much nature it's just a part of your life, uh, in the Northwest. Like everyone is doing something on the weekends. Um, and this was back in the nineties when my family moved from Portland up to Washington, I've just always had rain and fog in my blood. And I think when you grow up here, especially in the suburbs, like way out in the woods and stuff, most of your time as a kid is spent playing in the woods, getting lost in the woods, building tree forts in the woods. And so for me, I've always had this connection just to the outdoors, uh, you know, learned how to ski, was super into skiing growing up, soccer, track, uh, all these sports. I was never good at anything. Mm. I just really enjoyed everything. Um, and I want to emphasize that I was never really good at any sports. Uh, I feel like that sort of shaped who I am now and kind of where Ginger Runner came from as far as the roots was that I just was never I never won anything. I never I wasn't the star soccer player that was scoring goals or defending or anything. I, yeah. I just wasn't a sports star, but I love sports. Like I love soccer and I love running everything about it. So I think just starting at a super young age, I just had this connection. Um, as I grew up and uh, went to college and, and sort of was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do and also not figuring out what I wanted to do. I right out of high school, I started performing at a local comedy club. It was called jet city improv. It was all improv comedy, basically comedy. You get up on stage, you make it up on the spot. You get a suggestion from the audience and you do scenes and stuff with, with your teammates. It's like, yeah. whose line is it anyway? I don't know if you yeah. remember that TV show. Yeah. It's exactly like that. I have, I have so much respect and admiration for improv people. Dude, it is one of the funnest, most amazing yeah. things and exhilarating things to do. A lot of people think they can't do it or don't do it. Cause it, it scares the shit out of them right. like getting up on stage and not having a plan. But when you start to work that muscle and play with that muscle, it's, it's freeing. You know, yeah. being able to create on the spot is amazing. There's nothing yeah. quite like it, uh, especially when you have a visceral audience response, like laughter, which is just, it, it re and reinvigorates you. It inspires you. And it, it just makes you feel good, man. When you have yeah. a, an audience of 300 people on the edge of their seats waiting for the next joke or the next funny thing. And uh, it's, it's an amazing feeling. So were you always so right sort of like a, a yeah, like, a, were you always sort of like a, like a jokester, like the funny guy in school? God, like, no, man, I was, I was kind of geeky. I was the band nerd. I was shy. I would say it was probably, it was in high school, man, it's, this is weird. <laughs> it's kind of weird to think about now as a much older, older adult, yeah, but there yeah. was a thing at my high school called Mr. Eastlake, which is, you know, this is back in the nineties. It was like a talent show, but it was for jocks. So it was basically <laughs> like high school quarterback getting up on stage and doing stupid talents. And the, the, the school yeah. goes wild. Right. Yeah. And he's the prom. So king. I had a yeah. prom king, man. Like who's the most popular dude in school. 
they're going to win Mr. Eastlake. Okay. But there'd be like 20 guys, you know, most of which were football players or basketball players and everyone gets up on stage. And I mean, it's funny. It, it's super funny. I, we'd go every year uh, to watch. And then I think it was my junior year. This is high school. I had a teacher that was like, Hey, you know, I think you'd be really good as Mr. Eastlake. I was like, what? Nah, fuck that. Like, that's not my thing. I'm not popular. I'm not funny. Like I think I'm funny, but I'm only funny amongst my close group of friends. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I, this isn't for me. My teacher was like, no, listen, trust me. I think you got something here. I'm going to sign you up and you're going to do it. And we're going to see what happens. Worst thing that happens is you get up on stage, you perform, you have a good time and you lose <laughs> yeah. and you embarrass yourself in front of the entire student body. So I was like, yeah, okay, sign me up. What is the worst thing that can happen? And I started to take it really seriously. I, there's like multi, there's like a talent competition. There's, you walk on stage with a tuxedo and you're supposed to look all cool. There's like, uh, um, it's like a stand-up section. There's a, uh, yeah, a talent, a sketch. I don't know. There's all these weird parts of it. Yeah. But I started taking it super serious. So I wrote a sketch. Uh, I started uh, figuring out what my talent was going to be. I did all of these things. So I wrote a song that I played on guitar. It was all about a local town called North Bend. That's uh, just outside of Seattle. Yeah. So I wrote all these jokes about North Bend that to my high school, like everyone there would, would get. Uh, obviously, I don't think that would translate through the podcast, but sure, sure. I remember just making jokes about this specific city. Uh, my sketch that I wrote had my dad in it. So he would cut, he came out on the stage and he was with me in it. And then I got the local weatherman, uh, the most famous weatherman in Seattle. I, I reached out and was like, Hey, I'm running for Mr. Eastlake. I'm an, I'm a nobody. Do you want to be in my sketch and, and join me on stage? And he's like, yeah, this sounds great. So yes. it was like, I got the, like the local King weatherman. Dude, in those days too, was when like the local weatherman on the, on the local TV station is like, yeah, they're like celebrities. This Jeff Renner say today, I just want to turn on and watch Jeff Renner, man. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's still raining, still raining. It's still raining, but he, he'd always, he's that, I think he's since retired. He still makes appearances from time to time, but you know, he's the dude that this is literally no joke. All right, let's take a look at the weather today. Lots of rain and the clouds are dark and stormy, but don't worry, that high pressure system won't add too much pressure to your life. You know, that's him. And he was just the king of weather in the Northwest in the 90s. Yeah. And he said yes to be in my sketch. So that talent competition, that Mr. Eastlake thing, dude, I fucking killed it. Like the nerd, the the geek came out on stage and I felt something come alive inside wow. of me. And it just felt like this is what I meant was meant to do. I want to perform because wow. the audience was eating it up and everything was working. The sketch with Jeff Renner was amazing. My dad was great. Like everything was awesome. I totally lost. I did not win, but it was one of those moments where I knew what I wanted to do right. and it was perform. So that teacher who had faith in me saw something that I didn't have or that I didn't see. And it was because of that, I think that I had confidence to go join this improv theater company in Seattle, go audition and get in. And I performed at that theater for 10 years. Yeah. It was the reason I went to University of Washington so I could stay here and I could perform 
four nights a week while I'm going to classes. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I, I graduated college and I got a great job in a creative industry, I was doing motion graphic design and graphic design for a local board game company. Mm -hmm. So I was doing like really cool stuff during the day, graphic design, designing board games. And then at night I was doing comedy for audiences. And it was just this really cool mix of creative outlet and freedom of expression and, and comedy. What an awesome man, story. Yeah, it's it so, just wasn't enough. Yeah. I mean, it's so cool too. I mean, just like thinking about that feeling you get when you sort of get a small taste of what ultimately becomes like your life's obsession, you know, and similar for me, you know, I can point at things like that in, in my past that were very much like sport related, but where you find like, Oh my God, like I actually really enjoy doing this and I'm good at it. Like, and mm -hmm. I'm now fully addicted to it. And yeah, do you, you know, have a breakout moment? Like, do you have a moment? Like for well, me, it was that light switch moment. Do you have yeah, something like that? Yeah. I mean, like when I started focusing on playing lacrosse, like, and sort of stopped playing every other sport, that's sort of when, um, yeah, I, I started, you know, improving super rapidly and the sport was exploding in Colorado at the time where I grew up. Of course it has had traditionally always been sort of like an East coast prep school sport. And it was all of a right. sudden sort of like a public school, Colorado sport. And, you know, it had everything that I loved about, about sport, you know, it had the team camaraderie. It had some physicality. I'd played a little bit of football in the past too, but it also had like the finesse and the, the speed of basketball and soccer. And so like the mix of those two things, I would just like became totally obsessed with it. And it was, uh, you know, all that I thought about. And of course, like when I started having success as a player on the field, then it was like that same situation where I was like, Oh, okay. Like this is, this is my thing. And then ultimately also having a similar experience with running a little bit later in life. It's amazing. But, you know, right. to, to sort of echo what we said about, about Ryan, like you're also quite a Swiss army knife yourself, you know, like you said that you were a, a band nerd, but obviously like musically talented, you still make basically all the music that goes in your films. Obviously you're a great filmmaker, which most people know you for, but also your graphic design and stuff like that too. Like, have you, uh, have you always had sort of like that, uh, that creative disposition to you? Were you always sort of like somebody who, I don't know, just like was looking for creative outlets and, and how'd you nurture all those different skills? Without, without a doubt, I think I, I've always needed something. Uh, I think it was around, you know, when I was in high school and, and playing an instrument, I realized how much I truly enjoyed music. I grew up with a piano in our house and I don't think anyone played it. I think my sister might've taken lessons at one point, but I mean, it was an old piano. It was an untuned piano, but I remember always pounding on it and playing it and teaching myself songs, not reading music, but teaching myself my own songs. And I think just growing up with that, so just kind of lurking in the background that at any point I could sit down to a piano and make something or uh, my mom was an interior designer. So she always had pencils and pens just kind of sitting around and she had a room in the house that she, she had to go to school while she was raising me. Uh, so she always had homework. And so she was always doing 
work uh, with mechanical pencils and, and colored pencils and pens and stuff. And so I would always want to do that too. So I think I just had this sort of like freedom to explore what creativity was. It was just creating to create and not around any sort of structured lessons or classes or anything like that. Yeah. I think that just that planted the seed that I always needed to be doing something creative at all times. Did you have like a, did you have like a formal education in these creative outlets? Obviously you said that you were in the band and in high school, but at the university of Washington, was that what you were studying in addition to doing the improv work on the side? Or are you somebody who just sort of like teaches yourself everything, like how to do graphic design and how to make films and music, et cetera. hundred percent self-taught like wow. that. I think that was, Again, another, when I went to University of Washington, there was, I wanted to go to a film school. I wanted to go study filmmaking. Uh, there, I, there just weren't many, there weren't any near me, uh, but there weren't many that were affordable. Um, I mean, I applied to Cornell, like uh, Cornell in New York had a film program. I believe Boston University had a film program. I got into USC, but you know, all these schools were, astronomically expensive yeah, yeah and my family doesn't come from money so yeah. it was sort of like we got to figure out what you can actually do and for me that was an in-state school and i decided UW because one i'd stay closer to the theater that i was performing at and so that's have like a creative that's outlet. like your that's like your postgraduate degree in creativity right there right i mean <laughs> the, the, what i learned there <laughs> was so much more worth the actual education that i ended up paying for yeah just the stage time and you know i would i i ended up doing like i taught myself photoshop yeah. and so i did all the posters for all the shows at the theater so i was constantly doing design just self-taught and and creating stuff that would get printed and posted on walls around the city and it was like wow i'm doing work that people are seeing that i'm just i'm doing you know with no formal training it's pretty cool at UW, I did find the secret little department. I don't know if it still exists. I don't know if it's still there, if the teacher is still there, but there is a communications building. And in the basement of that communications building was this tiny little computer lab that this absolute perfect quintessential sort of basement computer guy, <laughs> yeah. he, he hosted. He basically had this program where it's, it was a work study where for an entire quarter, you could get uh, was it five or 10 credits as long as you taught yourself something through cool. computers. So I found this lab and this guy caught like his desk full of Mountain Dew cans. I was like, this is where I belong. This is where I need to be. And I was like, hey, I want to yeah. learn how to edit video and I want to learn how to do Photoshop. And by the end of the quarter, I want to, or he let me to do it for two quarters. So I was like, by the end of the second quarter, I want to show you something. Mm -hmm. I want to show you a portfolio. And he goes, this is great. You've got the next six months to do whatever you want. Wow. And it, it was that, this was probably, again, my junior year of college. I was, I mean, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Uh, and when I found that, it was like, this is great. Because now I can teach myself all the things I want to learn and get credit for it. Yeah. And that's what so I did. So ultimately you, you moved to LA some years later and was that to chase the dream of making it in, in Hollywood, so to speak. And I mean, yeah. tell, tell us about, about those years and what it's like to sort of hustle as a, 
as a, a struggling, you know, talent in a super competitive environment. Struggling talent. I, Dylan, I'm, I'm a perfect talent in LA standards. You look at me and you're like, man, that guy, that guy does everything. Well, but isn't uh, it, I mean, I, I'm just assuming that it's gotta be like, you move down there probably without yeah. a lot of connections, a lot of friends, and you're trying to make your way in an industry where there's probably thousands of other people who are also talented, who probably have more connections, more experience. I mean, what, what's the hustle like there? It's brutal, man. I, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it and I'm not going to try to play up the drama of it. It's, it's brutal. It's really difficult. And you really got to grow a thick skin. I think that's ultimately priority number one. Um, yeah, kind of what I found with my work and stuff up here was that it was fulfilling me, but it wasn't enough. And I had always wanted to sort of see what am I capable of in comedy and performance. So moving to LA was one of those decisions that it took me a while to get there. It took me a while to like get that confidence to to leave what I had established in Seattle and then go literally start from zero. Like you said, no connections. I had one friend that had been on American Idol and that was it. Like that was my connection to Hollywood was just having one friend that had been down there before. But I knew that I would always regret not trying. So I'll never regret moving to LA and trying LA, but I would have always regretted had I not. Mm -hmm. So moving down there in 2007, I wanted to have a safety net. I think I was confident enough to make the move, but not confident enough to start without some sort of safety net. And I made contact with a company down there that does trailer cuts. So they cut movie trailers and film trailers and video game trailers. And I was like, Hey, I'm a graphic designer, motion graphics guy in Seattle. I work for this company. Here's my reel. Can I come in and contract work for you? And I found one that said yes. And they brought me in as a basically entry-level motion graphics designer. Um, and they worked me senseless, dude. It was... I was expecting to have like a nine to five job. And then in the other times, I could like try to get an agent and try to pursue acting. But it was near 24 hours a day. You had to be on call to do graphics for movie trailers. It is a brutal, brutal uh, industry. And I knew when I got to LA and after about six months of that, that it wasn't, that wasn't the path. Like that's not why I moved to LA. It gave mm -hmm. me security, but it didn't give me any freedom to do anything. I was locked in a black box editing titles and graphics for movie trailers all day. Um, so did you feel so the pull, I started, like, I, I want to be on the other side of the camera sort of thing? Like I want to yeah. make use of my skills as a, as a comedian or as an actor. Yeah. So, so what did I was that really transition? thankful to have the, the it, it was a tough one. I was thankful to have the backup skills of motion graphics. So I kind of told yeah. myself, worst case scenario, get some contract work, you can survive. But I started taking less uh, classes at some of the local improv theaters, uh, Improv Olympics, Second City, Upright Citizens Brigade. These are some of the bigger improv theaters in the world. There are occasions where individuals from those theaters go on to SNL. And that's sort of where I saw... I wanted my path to eventually lead to Saturday Night Live. Dude, Every kid from the 90s awesome. grows up thinking you that. You would be awesome on Saturday Night Live. Don't give I up. I auditioned. And <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like my mom. My mom's like, you should be on Saturday Night Live. Mom. Yeah. Do you want me to make a call? Um, I auditioned and I didn't get very far yeah. uh, because I didn't 
I don't know. I don't do really good impersonations. Um, I do. Yeah, I can imagine it's a crazy audition process that you really have to get yeah. far into before you can even even be considered. But yeah, over the years, the first three or four years in LA, I went from graphic designer, motion graphics guy to just trying to find an agent to going on commercial auditions and auditions all over the city, just hoping for a yes, like just hoping for one casting director seeing me and going, yeah, this guy's pretty funny. Yeah. Meanwhile, again, I was doing improv in the theaters uh, in the evenings, performing and meeting and hustling and you're basically rubbing elbows with everyone you can and saying yes to everything. And yeah, you want me to do a free show for you at 11 PM in downtown Hollywood. I'm there. I won't miss it. And you're just doing as much as you can. And, uh, I got my first, I booked my first audition and it was one of those moments where my brain just went, yeah, dude, this is it. This is your big break. It was a tiny commercial, uh, for TBS. Do you remember the TBS funny commercials? Like 1-800-TBS-FUNNY? They I don't were think so. Just I know what TBS yeah, is. I remember TBS. The correct answer is no, I don't remember that one. <laughs> yeah. um, TBS, the network, yeah. had these ads in the late aughts that were like a phone operator answering going, hey, welcome to TBS one or 1-800-TBS-FUNNY. How can I direct your call? And it's usually like a celebrity saying, or they're using movie clips of a celebrity saying something and the person on the other end is like, yeah, that's funny. That's a, that's a good clip. And that's it. So I got the job as one of those people and, uh, man, it was not my big break, but it certainly <laughs> was my first yes. And that was all I needed. Yeah. I remember being on set and thinking like, I'm an actor now I'm getting yeah. paid. I'm on set. Look at the lights, look at the cameras and having a fucking panic attack. Yeah. Uh, just, sitting there and sweating in my shirt and freaking the fuck out and feeling like I was going to throw up because there there's a difference between being like here, you and me talking yeah. on camera, having a zoom call or whatever. Yeah. And there's a, and, and being in front of a client who's a billion dollar client with mm. 16 cameras aimed at you and all these big fucking lights, dude. I was terrified. It's so interesting. I mean, because I also sort of like wanted to talk about like this, you know, you've talked about having anxiety as it pertains to, you know, both your life as a, as a, you know, a, a talent and on-screen talent, but also in your running with your amongst the evergreens film about mm -hmm. your cascade crest race a few years ago. And to me, like, it seems like improv would be like the worst possible passion or yeah, I don't know, life direction for somebody with, with anxiety. And it's interesting to hear you sort of talk about the difference between, yeah, when you're putting a, a, a movie up on YouTube or whatever, that's going to get a hundred thousand views or whatever, or yeah, just like being in a studio with, with 15 people and a paying client. And that, that's the thing that, that freaks you out. It's funny because I've sort of discovered this over the last few years. It was around amongst the evergreens that I sort of figured this out that I tend to choose things in my life that make me really uncomfortable mm. because they make me uncomfortable. Uh, like improv for someone who suffers from anxiety and has, since I was a kid, improv is seemingly the last thing I'd ever want to do. But what it did was it put me in front. It made me stand up in a very uncomfortable situation and make up 
stuff on the spot in front of people. I mean, it's public speaking to the nth degree. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's insane, but doing it and, and engaging in it, you know, it's like behavioral therapy where you're, you're kind of constantly up, uh, putting yourself in that situation yeah, and you begin to yeah. learn like, Hey, it's not so bad. What's the worst mm-hmm. thing that can happen. And so that's sort of what happened with improv was that it, it, it went from this terrifies me and it's a trigger to, I have ownership of this and I really like it. And that's sort of what running did to me too, mm-hmm. especially distance running, because I also like, I hate throwing up. I hate all of these like I hate my body fighting against me or bonking the feelings that you get with the numb fingers or the tingling sensation where you feel lightheaded and you feel like you're going to pass out. Like all those feelings I hate, I can't mm-hmm. stand it. Like legit have a phobia of throwing up and the, what, you know, in my mind, I'm going, well, what's the thing that's going to not consciously, by the way, I don't want, yeah. I'm not consciously choosing to do this, but sure. Subconsciously, I think my brain was saying, what's the closest you can get to doing that and not do it and have control over it. And it's funny that ultra running just tended to be the thing that was it. Cause you're just, you're trying to control your body so much in ultra running, but there's so many unknowns that are just constant tests. Mm-hmm. You're constantly being tested. So whether it's nutrition, calories, uh, hydration, salt, heat, uh, uh, distance, weight, uh, gear. There's so many different things that you're testing and are testing you that when you find yourself in an uncomfortable situation, you have to solve it. Like you have to find your way out of it. And so for me, someone who's really afraid of, of getting sick and sort of being out of control, that's sort of the fundamental mm. fear is, is lack of control. Taking on big endurance events and pushing myself in places and, and in feelings that are uncomfortable is sort of a, of facing that fear, so yeah. to speak, and sort of gaining some semblance of control over those feelings. And of course, anxiety being the the demon beast that she is, it's always shifting for me specifically. Yeah. So things, what might have given me a trigger in the past is adapted or changed. And it's, so it's always evolving, but yeah, well, that's, interesting. Yeah, I always found myself really pushing in and leaning into those difficult, uncomfortable things. It's a good find, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you. And, and thanks for, thanks for sharing. I want to, talk more about, you know, this, your, your big break, uh, with this TBS <laughs> commercial. No, Sitting but I think, these lights, I, man. I think like, as we're talking, it's sort of dawning on me that, you know, you had all the skills to be behind the camera and doing the, um, you know, the design and, and, uh, you know, post-production work, you're, sort of passion was to be kind of in front of the camera, in front of the audience, getting the laughs, having that charisma and energy. And you sort of like came into the perfect era in media and entertainment, right? Because when you were in LA, it was sort of like the transition from traditional cable TV, broadcast TV into the internet generation where, you know, now with Ginger Runner, you're both the guy who's behind the camera and often the guy who's in front of the camera too. So it's sort of like the perfect mesh for, for the skills that you have and for the kind of uh, passions that you have as well. Do you, looking back at your time in LA and, and the birth of, of Ginger Runner, does that sort of resonate with you? And in like, without a doubt. Yeah. So, so when did you, when did you recognize that like YouTube was going to sort of be a thing and, and that you could sort of 
utilize your own skills independently and, and create content that at least you enjoyed at first, but ultimately turned into an amazing career. I started on YouTube in 2006. So I was doing comedy videos in 2006. That's when YouTube started. Uh, I was doing, that was while I lived in Seattle and I was doing comedy videos for some improv shows that I was doing. We would, we would do improv and then we'd show a video in the background and, you know, it'd be incorporated into the show. And I remember my mom being like, I want to see these videos. I was like, okay. So I'd upload them to YouTube and I'd send them to her because YouTube was essentially a sharing service where you would, it's how you shared a video. It wasn't like, Hey, look at my channel. It was okay, mom, I'm going to send you a video, but you had to do it through YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like an online cloud storage type place totally. where you can fire a link over to somebody. That was, that was it. It was like Dropbox or uh, uh, we transfer or something. Right. Right. Um, but then when I moved to LA and was starting to like, when I kind of started to act, I really wanted to do something. I was like, you know what? I have all this free time while I'm not auditioning. And of course I want to make a name for myself. I'm going to just keep doing sketch comedy videos and post them to my YouTube channel because that was sort of a way to share what you made. And I was, you know, performing at these improv clubs and people would be like, Hey, I just made this video posted it to YouTube here, check out the link. And so it kind of became a thing where people were sharing links of their videos mm. and sort of one thing led to another. And I did this contest. I, I kind of forget all the details are really a bit foggy, but I did this. Uh, I was doing a lot of live streaming because that was also brand new. There were other websites that were doing live streaming. I was doing kind of a uh, uh, late night talk show type things with different people who had this uh, cool studio that was doing live streams, but there was this contest that I believe was sponsored by Samsung where they would take you to the Vancouver Olympics. You had to, end, you had to basically say like, I'm a, I make videos or I'm a comedian or I'm a host and I want to go to the Olympics and I want to make a video while I'm there talking about all the cool sports. And it was sponsored by Samsung. The prize was like 30 grand and bunch of Samsung gear. Um, and they wanted to find people who were tech savvy, good on camera and could create quick content. Mm -hmm. So me and my comedy partner down in Los Angeles had been performing a ton together. And we both were like, let's enter this contest. Like what's the worst that could happen? We don't get it. You know? And we ended up getting chosen amongst like, I think eight different teams. I'm not totally sure, but there's like eight different teams of two. And we went to Vancouver. We went to the Olympics. Uh, this is uh, kind of one of the weird transformative moments too, because other members that were there, other teams that won, some of them have gone on to be some of the biggest YouTubers on earth. Really? And at that time, they were just starting out on YouTube. There was one guy, his name is Daystorm Power. He had turned YouTube into a career. And I didn't even think, I, no one knew this was a thing. So you, the job that I have now, what we're doing right here also, mm -hmm. like this didn't exist 10 years ago. There yeah. was no YouTuber. There was no influencer. There was no online presence that is a career. Yeah. But Daystorm Power had done that. So he's a musician. He does a lot of, uh, you know, he do funny comedy videos, but based around music and he'd write new raps every week. And it was really just incredibly talented dude. But he won a spot in this contest. So he went up there in Vancouver. And he was telling us other creators, like, 
I make a living on YouTube. This is what I do. Like I make X amount of dollars per month and I make a video every week or every Tuesday or whatever. And we are all kind of sitting there going, wait, what? Yeah. This is a thing. Like we don't have to go to on auditions and try to make it big or do what we can actually make our own stuff. And that opened my eyes, man. And that's when I realized that YouTube, that's the next thing. Wow. What an insight sort of, to have. What an insight to have amazing. at that time. So at what point did it turn from, you know, having a YouTube channel channel that probably focused mostly on comedy and being creative and funny to the birth of the ginger runner? Like how, how did that come about? Yeah. Yeah. It, I started realizing, uh, so I was doing years of comedy videos week after week. And I started realizing that I was becoming a glorified party clown because I would create a comedy video that I think was funny. And I'd be like, oh, this isn't funny. And I'd have to like, I'd feel the, the need to change it to appeal to the audience that I had generated at the time, which was a lot of like young kids, a lot yeah. of young people really wanting raunchy comedy and just edgy stuff. And I was like, this isn't what I want to do. This isn't yeah. me. This is shit, man. I'm literally just dancing around like a party clown trying to entertain uh, a, a really young audience that I'm just like not having fun. So around 2011 was when I, uh, I had sort of become passionate about gear and shoes and running. Uh, I ran the Seattle marathon in 2009, I think. Uh, which was my second marathon at that point. And I just really fell in love with running again. Um, just was a passion, just something to kind of stay in shape while I was in LA. Uh, but I was like, you know what? I am so into gear and I'm so into the nerdy side stuff from the sport, but I'm not seeing anything online about it. Like I'm not finding shoe reviews uh, that aren't being filmed from like a uh, someone who owns a store. It's like, hey, we just got these new Sauconies in. Let me tell you about the Sauconies. So I kind of found this gap where there wasn't reviews, there wasn't entertaining content. And I was like, you know what? I want to do this. Like, I want to yeah. talk about gear. I love it so much. Isn't that what YouTube is about? Like YouTube should be about uh, finding your own voice and talking about the things you want to talk about, doing the things you want to do. And so it was in 2011 that I sort of had the plan. I was like, I'm going to, I'm just going to put my shit out there. I'm going to put some ginger runner stuff out there have fun with it. The goal is to always be uh, entertaining, educational, informative, but have fun. It yeah. should never be stressful and it should never be more than just running and, and the enjoyment of it. Um, and so did so that's did, the kind of the birth as you, as you sort of transitioned into this new model focusing on, on running and everything that you do now, did you start to see, your audience respond? I mean, obviously I'm sure it took, took time to sort of carve your niche and recognize, you know, what people wanted to see and what sort of fulfilled you creatively. Mm -hmm. But did you start when you, when you made that pivot, was it, did it feel right? And did you get that validation from, from the audience? Did it start to grow sort of from there? It, it was, it was essentially starting from zero again, because I had spent so much time with the comedy channel and had kind of abandoned that. And I was really, I was booking acting jobs too. At that time, I spent a lot, like a couple of years, just not doing well yeah. uh, in Los Angeles. And that was sort of what maybe gave me the gas to figure out, listen, one, you're not doing well uh, financially. And two, you're not doing well creatively. You're not enjoying what you're creating. So maybe this is the opportunity to really figure out what you want. 
and I, I ended up booking a couple good acting jobs and, and going on some auditions that sort of gave me this weird, like, wait, why am I doing this? Why am I going on these auditions and, and going into these waiting rooms where I'm looking at 20 other redheaded dudes, half of which are named Ethan and like, what's the point? Yeah. And it was at that same time that the ginger runner thing was sort of like, I'm willing to start from scratch and start over if it gives me joy and happiness. Like I enjoy making content. I love talking about gear. I love running. Let's see if I can try to build something here. So the audience, it took a long time. Yeah. The first so, few years were really slow. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, but it's, it's turned into a, into a juggernaut and you know, it's, I think everybody can identify with, you know, having the the couple really shitty years, you know, and now looking back at that, having that be the birthplace of the ginger runner empire. I mean, it's pretty freaking cool, man. I'm sure, you know, those were some unpleasant times, um, but man, it, uh, it created a monster and, uh, you know, you gotta be, gotta be grateful for those moments too. So at what point did it become clear that like, you know, Ginger Runner was, was going to be a thing or at what point were you sort of like, okay, this is working and, and maybe I could actually commit to this full time. It was before 2015. Uh, Cause 2015 is when we uh, both Kim and I really made the decision. We're all in on Ginger Runner. This is it. This is what we want to do for the rest of our lives in some capacity. And I would say the two years leading up to that were sort of the farewell to acting and improv. That was the other sort of heartbreaking farewell as I was becoming disenchanted with, with performing. And so LA having to grow that thick skin and, and really learn what you like and don't like. Uh, I feel like LA taught me a lot and it, it did ruin a lot of the things I loved, but what it did show me was that something like ginger runner, which I own and is, is created by me sort of gave me everything I needed, which was uh, a passionate outlet for things I like to talk about, uh, a creative outlet for visuals that I like to create, whether that's through film or graphic design or, or art or gear, uh, and a passionate outlet for music. So I could create all the music for my films. Like it basically gave me an endless array of paths that I could choose to to trod down. Yeah. So in 2015, that was the full, let's do this. Let's, let's turn off everything else. Let's focus on ginger runner. It's when we opened up our Patreon, which at the time was, it was early in the Patreon days, as far as that, you know, they were a new company, they're kind yeah. of figuring out what they were doing with the creators and we were full on rolling the dice. Uh, yeah. it's not easy to say, Hey, I do this thing. Do you want to come support me doing this thing? Yeah. There's this site. Especially Patreon, in, those, you know? in those early days too. It's like, what is yeah. this? GoFundMe for actors and comedians? Like, totally, man. Yeah. yeah. Like you can't say, go to my Kickstarter or go right. to my GoFundMe. Like it's it's hard. Yeah. It's, it's amazing it how that's been embraced though. I mean, it's such a great model. And um, yeah, I mean, it's really opened the door for you know, better content, independent content, yep. stuff that's not necessarily dependent on, you know, you trying to sell me a mattress or whatever. And um, yeah, I can see how 
for you, yeah, with all your different skills, it's like the perfect outlet. It's so funny that you had that introduction to YouTube, like back in 2006. And then, you know, it wasn't until 2015 that it was actually like, you know, this is my, my full-time thing. That's freaking 10 years of hustle, man. Dude, it's, it's a long hustle. And that, I mean, I think anyone who starts, I, I don't want to ever dissuade anyone from, from pursuing a YouTube dream or, yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be YouTube. I hate, you know, saying like, oh, I'm a YouTuber. Yeah. You want, you know, you want to be a creator. You want to be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, you're telling stories, you're, you're sharing information. There's so many other names for it that I think in, like capture it, encompass it yeah. capture it better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. so anyone who's young and maybe thinking like, Oh, I want to do that, but I don't want to hustle for 10 years. Like it's changed. You don't have to hustle for 10 years. This yeah. was before there was a business model attached to it. And, mm. you know, I, I think I had to chisel my teeth the hard way and learn from people who'd done it before me. And I got lucky in a lot of spots and I got unlucky in a lot of spots. Yeah. Um, to this day, I don't make anything on YouTube. Like as far as what YouTube pays, it is not we can't pay rent really you know? well hundred mm. percent it wow. is only patreon like that's wow. that's it well shout out to the patreon supporters out there huge so, shout out so let's uh i i want to just touch on something you just mentioned and that is like when you made the decision to walk away from the dream of like making it in hollywood or whatever was that around the same time that you guys moved back up to seattle and I mean, how was, how did, how did that go for you emotionally, psychologically? I mean, it must've been a bit of a, a struggle and it probably was something you arrived at after a couple of years. It sounds like talk about that, um, that decision that you made and you know, what it felt like to actually, yeah, kind of move away what, from what had been sort of your, your ultimate goal and dream. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was hard, man. It, it was hard. And then it wasn't, um, just the, you know, I spent about 10 years in Los Angeles. So I was there for about a decade. The first two were just who the fuck am I? And what am I doing here? You're just struggling to find a community. Those first couple of years in any new city, let alone Los Angeles, you're just trying to make it. Uh, the two years after that were much more like I found my people. Like I found my comedian friends and I found stages to perform on. And I found niches that, fulfilled some of those creative gaps. Uh, the next few years were I'm broke. And what, what was my decision? Why did I do this? This is what's this lesson I'm trying to teach myself, uh, having to, you know, go down to subway and buy a $5 foot long. That's going to last me for two days. Uh, I hope. And it's, you know, it's not like, yeah, yeah I struggle, but I didn't, I don't want to claim that I'm Right. That I really struggled. It's yeah, yeah. like, it was hard, but yeah. it wasn't, you know, I think it taught me what I really truly valued. Yeah. And so it was the last few years in LA when, you know, Kim and I had been dating for a long time since 2007, like right before I, I moved down to LA, our relationship really began to, uh, to grow the longer I was in LA. So by the time like 2015, when Ginger Renner was sort of like our choice and in, in decisions to move forward, Kimmit was moving or was living down there and we were much closer. And it was sort of like, I have everything I need. I've got the person that I love. I've got a partner. I've got a, a creative outlet that again, just kind of allows me to do whatever I want and fulfill me. What am I, what am I still holding on to LA for? What am I still looking for here? 
that dream for a Saturday night, Saturday night live. Like I, I had my shot and I didn't get it. It's still and coming, dude. I, it's still coming. <laughs> you know, at this point I'm like, maybe someday I'll host it. I'm not going to be on it. <laughs> yes. Maybe I'll host it. Oh, even uh, better. Even better. <laughs> and you know, a lot of, there's some first time hosts that are, you know, in their sixties. So I still got time. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there was just this moment where I started to disconnect with the dream that I moved down there with because it, it wasn't me saying I failed. It was me going, holy shit, I succeeded in finding what I really wanted. Yeah. Which was just a creative outlet. Yeah. Um, that I was in control of. I didn't have a director or a brand or a client on set staring at me underneath $15,000 lights telling me how to perform. I had my own product, you know, I have a light above me that cost me a couple hundred bucks and I I was making do with so little doing so much in story and entertainment. And I just felt so fulfilled. I still do. Yeah. So it was just this journey where it took me 10 years to get there. But in 2017, yeah, Kim and I were like, we're moving, we're going back to the, to where we love, which is the land of mist and trees and mountains and Man, rain we haven't looked back. And, rain and fog in your blood, man. Rain and fog in my what blood, bro. Well, That's it's great, calling. man. Yeah, and I mean, the things never play out the way we we envision them, but oftentimes, you know, they work out even better. And then, in a way that, uh, yeah, gives you the ultimate fulfillment that utilizes a hundred percent of your skills. It gives you a hundred percent ownership of over your career. You're not dependent on having connections at studios or different, you know, auditioning opportunities. So it's really cool, man. And I want to sort of like shift and talk a bit about like the community that you have sort of built around Ginger Runner, because it's such a cool thing. It's such a powerful thing. And I think, you know, as we sort of look at the current sort of, um, I don't know, media environment. And everybody talks about this creator economy and like, you know, developing like a community of people that really love your content. Obviously I'm sure feels really good to you. And whenever I come on Mm. Ginger Runner Live, we always talk about Greg, my old UPS driver in Mill Valley. Shout out to Greg. Shout out to Greg. <laughs> and just for the audience, um, Greg uh, is a he's a UPS driver in Mill Valley. I wish I knew his his last name, but um, obviously my wife Harmony and I lived in Mill Valley for a number of years. And you know he used to like see me running around town or whatever. And when he would drop things off at our house. You know, one time he said, oh, do you, do you know who the ginger runner is? And I was like, oh yeah, you know, Ethan's my boy, Ethan's my bud. And, and so now whenever I go on your show, I give a shout out to, to Greg, the UPS driver. And it's just like, so cool. And also, you know, I've been in so many different countries traveling to race in, in Europe and Japan and New Zealand and stuff. Everybody's like, oh, Dylan, yeah, I saw you on the ginger runner. And I'm like, this yes. is, this is amazing. It's like this worldwide network of people that you've built around, you know, this passion that you have. And it's just like, there's nothing cooler than that. And you have a hundred percent ownership over that. And, you know, these yeah. people feel a loyalty to you because like they, you know, they tell, they can tell that it's, yeah, it's like, you know, it's, it's your passion and that you're good at it and, you know, it's entertaining at the same time and you provide good information. So I want to talk a bit about like, I don't know, like, what it, what it takes to sort of like develop, um, 
a community around your content and like maybe for, for other people who are interested in kind of getting into creative fields, are there anything that comes to mind in terms of, yeah, like engaging the people who consume your content and developing a relationship with them? I mean, it, it, it happened organically because I would say even in the last year, I have felt more connected to our community than I have in the last 10. We just celebrated 10 years of Ginger Inner uh, in, in January, February. And I, I've always had this sense that we have this amazing group of people who watch the videos and you'll see the same names pop into the comments and say, uh, or kind of follow the journey or, or share their stories of inspiration. Like, Hey, this video led me to this. And I went and did this and you receive emails from time to time. Like I remember I get tons of emails, uh, that are just incredible stories. People who maybe caught the glimpse of a review. And then that review led them to amongst the evergreens or uh, altering expectations or some other movie that I made. They watch that and then they go, Oh shit, I could do that. And then they go and do it. And then they report back with, I ran my first 50 K thanks to this one Solomon shoe review led me to this other whole world of, of running. Wow. And that was always, it continues to this day to be one of the most fulfilling things I've I just never experienced before in my life. Like when you start reading personal stories of triumph from other people, you realize that that's important. It's not just, you know, this is sort of the evolution of what I've learned with the channel and what really matters most to me is, I started telling my own stories. I started with like, here's me experiencing adventure or experiencing uh, an ultra or the pain associated with an ultra or pushing through mental demons. Here's me experiencing that. And then there was this shift where it started to be about other people and mm -hmm. them going through their experiences, documenting you going through yeah. your experiences on Rainier or the Lost Coast. And yeah. people start to connect to that. And so the stories that I would get back from people were exactly what I realize is what matters to me now it's yeah. other people's stories because that's, what's inspiring me mm. to just continue to get up out of bed and to take another step forward. It's mm. the stories from people. And I know it sounds cliche, but I, man, I can't tell you what it's like until you receive an email from someone who overcame cancer and ran their first marathon. And then is training for an ultra or has a dream to do a 50 miler or something like it just, it changes something. Yeah. You. What an amazing um, gift. And it reminds I'm me so lucky, man. So yeah. lucky. Yeah. And it reminds me of when we were at Rainier together this past summer, there was a couple people who came up to you and said like, Hey, you know, your film about Gary Robbins running this trail got me into trail running. And, you know, we're all there like around you and know you and you're like, you know, this normal dude, but it's like people come up to you and they're like, oh man, like your stuff has actually like moved me and like changed some part of my life in some somewhat profound way, even though it might seem kind of silly. I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool thing. And I think just, I mean, dude, if you had asked me in 2007, when I moved to Los Angeles to do like shitty comedy, like, <laughs> yeah. let's be honest here, this is, and I, this is a journey I never thought I would take yeah. and here I am, you know, 14 years after I first moved to Los Angeles in a place where I'm, I'm talking to you, yeah. Dylan Bowman, one of the fucking best athletes in the world about, you know, we're not, we haven't even touched on the sport really. We're just talking about life and stuff. And it's, 
it's just mind blowing that I'm here now in this place in life and just hearing people's stories and stuff. It just doesn't make sense to how I got here, but I'm so happy I'm here. Yeah. I'm so happy I'm here. Yeah. And I mean, going hand in hand with the community thing too. I mean, you're now a race director, you know, and this community has allowed you to like, yeah, I mean, 2000. I was a race director one day. Well, uh, we've had a couple of years of pandemic yeah. between that day, but <laughs> taking yeah. a couple of year hiatus. We're ramping up again. Yeah, so. yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, I think, illustrative of the power of this community that you've built is like, okay, you know, you're a creative person. Yeah, you're great at filmmaking. You can do graphic design. You can do, uh, you know, the music that, that appears in your films. But it's also like, oh, well, actually, Tiger Mountain is here in my neighborhood. And, you know, having that creative brain that you have, you're like, well, let's set up like a super unique format for the race. And it has like its own sort of unique ginger runner quality to it, you know, that other races don't have. And so I think it just like sort of nails home this this idea of of building community around, you know, what, what really you care about and what moves you. Any other sort of comments about sort of the creator economy that we live in now, any, you know, sort of like commentary on the present and future of, you know, independent creators or even like these non-fungible tokens, are you going to sell any NFTs on uh, (laughs) nifties, bro? Nifties. I, uh, I was wondering if we get into nifties, I know, cause I know that you're a little caught up on crypto. So I was like, Oh man, yeah. I wonder if Dylan and I could talk about that shit. Damn straight. I would say the one thing that I've, I've, I've really began again, I kind of learned this in the last year with the pandemic and having to sort of pivot again and kind of reshift focus on how can we continue to engage the humans and bring humans together? Because one thing we learned with Tiger Claw that year in 2019 was that community begets community. Mm-hmm. Like you, you start having people around you that are amazing humans and people are going to be drawn to the community as much as, you know, people might think like, Oh, ginger runner, you have this amazing community around you or Kim. The truth is the community has its own community. Like it is the group of people within it that continue to flourish and to grow. We have a discord server amongst our GR crew members uh, that it is so inviting and wonderful and full of, of stories of people triumphing. Um, is that a word? Triumphing? Yeah. <laughs> Triumphant Seating. stories. Yeah, sure. Triumphant uh, stories. We, we of know success. what you're saying. <laughs> I appreciate it. But it's, it's so cool because it's really, it's hands off. Like we're not sitting in there trying to stir up stories from people. It's just the community members supporting other community members. We had a, a, an individual run his first hundred miler in October DIY. So he's like, I really want to run hundred miles. There's no races happening. I'm going to run one in my backyard. We had another crew member who lived nearby. That's like, I want to be there and I want to support you. However you need the support. She'd never run an ultra before, but she was like a fan of, of some ginger runner videos. And she's an, um, a marathon runner and she showed up and she ran 50 miles. So she in support of this other GR crew member, ran her first ultra, which also happened to be 50 fucking miles yeah. uh, in support of him finishing his first hundred miler. It was this kind of like moment where I realized everything had leveled up. Yeah. So it's not just, I'm going to make a video. I'm going to put it on YouTube and I'm going to read the comments and interact with the comments. And that's community. Mm-hmm. It was, Oh my God, the community now has taken it upon themselves 
to blossom and yeah. encourage and and support. There's a fucking GR crew trivia night every week. There's a GR crew book club. There's all these things that are <laughs> yes. out of our hands. The crew has taken it upon themselves to create. And wow. it is amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. And I'm sure a lot of cool friendships and yeah. Without maybe, a doubt. Yeah. That's so cool, man. Well, good for you. So let's talk a little bit about your, uh, your partner in crime, Kim Tashima Newberry. Best who, human uh, on earth, man. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's also probably pretty amazing, fulfilling for you to be able to kind of share this, this life's work with your, with your life partner. So, um, and, you know, Kim obviously is, is, you know, talented herself, both, you know, on camera and with what you guys do and as a, as an athlete. And, um, I imagine that, um, yeah, I mean, just, uh, any comments about like what, what it's like to, yeah, to, to work together and as colleagues, in, in addition to sharing a life as, as a married couple. I mean, that one of the things mm. that makes me want to ask this is because Harmony and I have a similar thing, you know, with, with pillars and what we're doing now. I mean, she's an integral, you know, super important part of, of what we're doing and amazingly talented in ways that I'm totally not. And, uh, I'm just wondering if you want to comment about how you guys complement each other. I hadn't even realized like the parallels. You're right. Because we both have our own businesses and our partners are as big, if not bigger part of it. Right. Totally. And, and I don't think there's no, there's zero doubt that ginger runner wouldn't be what it is uh, as a brand right now, if it wasn't for Kim, because mm -hmm. she brings so much additional life experience and perspective and uh, support, like just having endless support. So if I propose an idea of like, Hey, what if we made a movie about this? Or what if we did this? Or what if we thought about doing an event like Tiger Claw? She is right there to help, you know, set that volleyball so we can spike it. Or she's there to, to take the reins and absolutely crush it. Like Kim is uh, an absolute godsend. And as far as a wife, I could, I mean, man, I punched so far above my weight. I'm so lucky. Uh, <laughs> she's just, both, dude, yeah. we're, we're lucky I'll dudes, man. Our I'll kicked our coverage for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'll kicked our coverage. Yeah. I, I'm just, yeah, I can't stop gushing about her and I'm, I'm yeah. so damn lucky. You got to have her on the podcast, man. Cause, cause she has a yeah. lot of just life experiences and stuff and she's yeah. amazing. We could talk um, about her. Uh, yeah. Becoming a U.S. citizen uh, debacle. Yeah. <laughs> We, just we the amount that she sacrificed that. to be here too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's a crazy story and it's a lot, it's yeah. a lot of work and she's, she's everything, man. Well, she's yeah, great. we'll have to pencil her in, in the near future. So before we, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Wonderland, obviously, because that's, that's timely and relevant based on the films that you've just released. Um, but first I figured we talk about, about, uh, a project that, uh, you had come up with that we were contemplating doing a couple of years ago. Uh, <sighs> maybe, maybe tell the people about I'm this project so sad about this, man, tell the people about the project. This project was, it ultimately didn't happen. Yeah. I don't mean to interrupt. I'm just so sad about it. It's one of those things I think I'm still just like, oh, just frustrated. So this idea, it's it wasn't new. So it had definitely like, God, at this point, I don't even remember how I found out about it. I'm trying to think where I read about it or, or, or whatever. There's this guy. His name is Forrest Fenn. And he's this art collector art thief almost in, in some capacities. Cause I think a lot of the artifacts he had, 
I, you know, there's, there's rumors that many of them don't even belong to him or, or he sort of appropriated them from uh, indigenous people, but he has this treasure trove of literal treasure and decided that he was going to hide a million dollars worth of it out in the Rockies, somewhere between the Canadian border and the Mexico border. He's just going to put it out there and hide it and then write a poem about it. And the poem had clues on where to find the treasure. There is website after website after Reddit thread after Reddit thread about all of this. And this has been going on for years now. So we're, I think this is the 10th anniversary or it was like late 2020 or something was the 10th anniversary. So this 2010, I think is when he buried it. And so this has been, this has been sort of lore for years. I found it. When did we start talking about like 2016, 2017? Yeah. So it's been, a, year. it's been years. Yeah, a couple of years at least. I, I came across this by accident and I, it was sort of one of those disbelief moments of this isn't real. There's some <laughs> dude that like has pirate treasure that he's hidden in the mountains and just wants you to go find this is fucking Goonies. And there's in like real a whole, life. there's a whole like internet subculture devoted to Completely. cracking the code and finding it. And so my, my brain immediately goes to, well, I'm going to solve this code. I'm the, I, I found this hint. I'm going to, I'm going to read his poem. I'm going to know exactly where it is. And I'm going to go find fucking million dollars worth of treasure. But wait, what if I made it an ultra running adventure? Cause I mean, who knows where this stuff is hidden? It could be deep in the Rockies. It could be in Wyoming near uh, Yellowstone. Who knows? So then I was like, I think this could be a really cool project where we bring together some of the best athletes, ultra runners, and we go try to find the treasure. We bring in like our favorite five or six ultra runners, let them solve the puzzle. And we go to where they think it is. And we document it and guarantee we all fail but we tell the story of camaraderie, brothership and sisterhood. And we, you know, everyone coming together for common good. We tell this cool story, right? Yeah. I don't need a happy ending in my movies. I think yeah. most of my movies tend to have surprise endings. Yeah. Um, so I pitched this idea to you and I think, I, don't, I, I feel like your first email back was, holy shit. Let's how do we do, do this? <laughs> Let's fucking go. L F G. And yeah, we, we started putting the pieces of the puzzle together and I, I, I did up a big pitch packet for uh, uh, Red Bull and it was like, man, it was just fucking sick. I was so excited and the ball was moving and Red Bull was on board. It was like, oh my God, this is going to happen. Who are we going to bring in? Like, how is this going to work? And we just, the ideas just kept compiling and it just kept getting better and better. And I was like, dude, this is it, man. Like where dreams go to die was our stepping stone. This is is it this is the Oscar, treasure bro. yeah this is the treasure hunt man uh and then someone fucking found the treasure and then some <laughs> jerk went and found our goddamn treasure come on man <laughs> brutal oh it's such a bummer man such a brutal yeah. ending it's hilarious and i mean for the listeners who are not familiar with the forest fan story i wasn't either but if you just do a quick google search you'll end up down an amazing rabbit hole including yeah like what happened to the guy who who found the treasure you know he's like insisting on i think remaining anonymous and like he's doing his best yeah, yeah. and uh yeah like 
there was a whole community of people who were convinced it was fraudulent that he didn't actually find it, but that he had to post pictures with Forrest, you know, Forrest had to confirm, yes, this is the treasure. And, you know, thousands of people were disappointed. I mean, there's internet lore too, about like people who have died in pursuit of finding the treasure. Yeah. I mean, it's like the most amazing sort of, uh, you know, contemporary treasure hunt story ever. So I'd encourage listeners to go down that rabbit hole. If, uh, if I, I, the man, if that treasure, like if that treasure hadn't been found, just even thinking about it and the addiction to trying to solve it was, was real. Like I spent months yeah. deciphering clues and digging in deeper and scouring Google maps, dude. Like yeah. I was just zooming in and, highlighting and enhancing and trying to find all these little nuanced uh, ridges and topography, just trying to figure out clues to the puzzle. And some guy fucking found it. God damn it. Well, <clears throat> it was, it was an amazing idea. I think just a, yeah, another sort of like brilliant ginger runner, uh, you know, production, but ultimately didn't come to be, but uh, we'll have didn't to come to be, we'll have, you'll have to come up with, with new ideas uh, that are, there might be an alternative. Yeah. There might, there might be some other ideas stewing in there, but yeah, yeah it's, it was one of those like ah, gold literally. And uh, <laughs> didn't come. Well, what we did get to make this past summer was a fun little creative project about the, uh, the Wonderland trail around Mount Rainier. And of course, like I mentioned earlier, you had made the film about Gary's FKT, geez, a number of years ago. And I, I sort of feel like that was sort of like one of your first sort of films about other people. Is that right? Where it was became less about, you know, where, it, where instead of only focusing on gear reviews or your own training and racing that you had an artistic approach to somebody else's goals. Um, let's talk about the, the Wonderland this, this past summer. I mean, those, those seven days were, were quite, uh, quite eventful <laughs> and, um, you know, and it's close to home for both of us. And we both yeah. now have, have some experience on the trail and, uh, you know, it was a historic week out there around Mount Rainier. Um, what are, what are your reflections about that and, and about the creative process of, of putting the film together? I mean, first I'm in awe. I'm in awe of what you did. I'm in awe of what Caitlin did. I'm in awe of what Tyler did. Um, there, I like during a year where everything is taken away, you're still trying, like you're still trying to do something and accomplish something. And to just even attempt to do an FKT around a mountain like that to, to do such a big effort in a time when there's so much, just when everything is unsure, it, 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 my hat's off to you. And what you managed to do out there is, dude, you set a standard. And I know Caitlin mentions that in the sort of at the, at the beginning of the director's cut, she just kind of mentions like set a new standard, Dylan. Mm -hmm. And you did that because reflecting back on, on, 2015, when Gary set the FKT, that was one of those moments. It was, it was very organic in the sense that Gary kind of calls us up and it's like, Hey man, do you want to drive up from California and, and crew me uh, during the wonderland? And we're like, fuck yeah, this sounds amazing. And I was like, can I bring a camera? And he's like, sure. And so we, we kind of accidentally documented history. And it was one of those moments where we didn't know 
what we had just witnessed until mm. you begin to kind of soak it all in. And Gary beating Kyle Skaggs' time and seeing that it was thought to be unbeatable and Gary beat it by two hours. And how the fuck did that happen? Yeah. So Gary had the day of his life. This will never be beaten. You know, you, you have those thoughts because FKTs are so, when you see an FKT made, it's like, this is incredible. Yeah. And you start thinking like, this can't be beat. And so coming back in 2020, it was just, we've got Dylan Bowman. He's, he's at the top of his game right now. We've got Caitlin Gerben, who is just taken to the trail scene by storm. She's the new name uh, yeah. to follow, like just incredible. So we got these two incredible athletes on terrain that is familiar to them. They're now both Northwest. Dude, we love that you're in the Northwest. Don't fucking leave. You are <laughs> such an icon here. We love it. Portland, and seeing bro. them shred is, I mean, it was an honor, dude. It was an honor to, to be back on such hallowed ground, but it was also an honor to just witness such a standard being set. I yeah. wish I was there for Tyler's. I'm sure you were, you know, probably yeah. wish you were there to see it too. Cause it, I know you guys are buddies. It's just crazy that it all happened in seven fucking days. That like crazy. That, it's bonkers. Yeah. You know, it, in hindsight, it would have made so much sense for you to just stay and document Tyler's like, that would have been such an insane thing just camping to, out. To, to document. I mean, to have, I mean, because you did get some, just a very short piece of footage from Tyler's finish basically, which is in the director's cut of the Wonderland film. But man, if it had all three of those in a row in the, in seven days time, man, that was, uh, that was something to I be I think part that'd of. be the story. You know, when you, when, when you piece together a movie like this and that's sort of the, the fun part and the challenging part is the puzzle. Cause you yeah. don't have a finished picture. You have all the pieces and you don't know how the pieces are going to fit together. Mm-hmm. And when I first shot both you and Caitlin's attempts, you know, when I shot yours, I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. Who knows what fucking Caitlin's going to do next week. And then you have Tyler do what he did in the middle. And it kind of made me as a storyteller go, I do wish I had seen Tyler do it because that's the lineage. You know, you yeah. see Dylan crush it. You see Tyler crush it. And then you see Caitlin crush it. And that's sort of a cool linear story while also having a bit of like, oh, there's, there's triumph and failure and all of that kind of yeah. encompassed. Um, so trying to tell that cohesive story was the biggest challenge because we had to do service to your attempt because it was such groundbreaking, stellar set in the new bar. I wish we had more. Yeah, I wish I was there for Tyler so I could kind of show like what Tyler did also. Like Dylan set the ghost. And Tyler had to chase the ghost Yeah, and Tyler did. And Tyler had a, a really good day and, and shaved just a little bit off. So there is so much story there. And I wish, of course I had documented some of Tyler's, but at the same point, you know, his, his experience is his to tell and, yeah. and his crews and stuff like that. And FKTs are so personal. I can only imagine I've never, I've only set about 11. Uh, so I only know how personal they are. Well, I think you did a great job of sort of, yeah, of like, at least taking the footage that you could get from Tyler and making that part of the story and doing justice to the fact that, you know, that there was that dynamic of it being broken so quickly and, you know, me coming back and, and helping Caitlin and all of this happening in, 
less than seven days. It's like, I don't week, know. Dude. Looking back, it's, it was just like such a whirlwind, such an emotional roller coaster. Cause I was like on a high and then I was like super down and then went back and, and paced Caitlin. And I was like back on cloud nine again. And yeah, I don't know. It's, I think just uh, another, I mean, you did a great job of, of capturing it, but I think it's uh, illustrative of, yeah, just the community and the sport and how cool it is that, you know, you, you have the ups and downs, you have the triumphs and failures and you have these amazing characters and, um, you know, kudos to you for piecing it all together and, and doing the story justice. I mean, also kudos to you, man, just for being open and even talking about it and sharing it continue. Cause I know, you know, having documented Gary's attempts at Barkley and, and how much that it was difficult, you know, it was difficult for him not being able to complete it the second time, obviously, yeah. but having to relive it every time that we went, we went on tour with that movie. And every time we'd watch it with a live audience, Gary has to sit there and relive those moments in his life. And that's, that's hard. Yeah. So I can only imagine for you, it's also like having to relive it anytime. someone probably mentions like, dude, you know, love summer of wonder or congrats. It probably kind of hits you with that kind of bittersweet. Is it yeah. a little bittersweet from time? Well, to time? yeah. I mean, uh, I think ultimately it ended up being a positive for me, even though for a few days it was like, I was pretty, pretty down about it. Um, I think ultimately, you know, being able to have Tyler on my podcast and, and um, share the story of both of us and, and sort of, I don't know, like part of the thing, one of the things that I'm really interested in doing now in my career is like sort of shepherding the spirit of the sport forward, you know, and like sort of handing it off to the next generation in the same way it was handed to me. And I think Mm -hmm. it's important to like, yeah, have the, the exhibition of good sportsmanship and friendship. And like, I think, you know, I got a ton of really nice, you know, feedback from people saying you handled that well, et cetera. And, you know, not to pat myself on the back or whatever, but like Tyler's a great guy, you know, and I didn't, and I had received messages of like, this jerk just waited for you to go and like went after your record immediately after you did it. And of course I had to go out of my way to say, no, I knew he was going. It's all, this is all fair. He didn't plan it that way. And, um, and so being able to sort of like, yeah, sort of like, help Tyler share his story, have the back and forth. And at the same time show that like we respect one another and that the sport is fucking so cool in that way that we can just sit down and drink beer together and talk about it instead of like me being super pissed off at him or whatever, or him like, or him like, you know, doing the end zone dance in front of me or whatever, you know? (laughs) So sorry, bro. (laughs) So I do have to, I, I just want to quickly mention that. Uh, I want to shout out to some of the individuals that that really helped make that happen because, you know, the biggest challenge when presented with uh, Dylan and Caitlin kind of saying, Hey, do you want to make a movie about this? My first thought is I can't fucking keep up with you two. I mean, there's, there's no chance in hell. I'm literally just a normal average dude. If I tried, I die. So, you know, shout outs to Ryan thrower, to Yassine Daboon, to, to, all of Caitlin's Pacers, uh, Ellie, Tara, uh, Alex, you, Dylan, um, there's just a Brian Bark. Like there's just such a team of people who made that movie possible because they had the speed in their legs to keep up with you fucking monsters that there would be no movie without them. So, I mean, of course, a huge shout out to them. Team effort. Well, it's awesome, man. 
Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks for putting it together. And thanks for everything you do. You're such a, such a important part of our community and you provide so much value and not only for the core sort of ginger runner, ginger runner army, as I call them, but the, um, you know, for all of us who are sort of peripherally, uh, associated with the, the ginger runner community, um, and just generally enjoy the, the content that you make available, the information, the inspiration that you provide to each and every one of us with your content. So, um, let's sign off by just talking a bit about what you've got coming up. Uh, I don't know if you're able to disclose any creative projects that you're working on, but I'm also, since we didn't talk about running hardly at all, I'd love to hear if you have any <laughs> sort of athletic goals that you're <laughs> looking at. I'm going to go the after year. the uh, Wonderland FKT. I can't wait. <laughs> Dude, I'll give uh, you the beta. I'll give you the beta. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm I, like, I've actually been dealing with like, this crazy calf injury for the last two months. It's just not going away. So I'm taking it super easy. I'm doing yeah. a ton of cycling and it, it feels good because, you know, I'm kind of considering this the down season, I yeah. guess. I don't normally take a down season, but I know that you have pro athletes do all the time. It's just part of it. So I'm kind of looking at it maybe as an opportunity. Yeah. Really, man, I have this idea for a project that's it's more of a personal one, but celebrating 10 years uh, of Ginger Runner, I kind of wanted to do something um, challenging, both mentally and physically. And I had this idea for a thing called a double-double. One is kind of an homage to the old In-N-Out double-double. Uh, and another, because it involves two sports. One section involves biking. So biking 250Ks and running 250Ks. So all back to back. So you basically ride for 50 K run for 50 K turn around, bike back 50 K and run back 50 K. Oh my gosh. Um, so it'd be 200 kilometers. Uh, I don't know when I do this, but the, the route is kind of been picked. I'm kind of stoked on the route because it involves some gravel biking. So there'd be some road sections, some gravel biking, some trail running. Yeah. I think it'd be super sick. Uh, what I've been doing so much idea. cycling lately. And I'm like, why not? You know, why not yeah. use some bike? Well, cool, man. Well, 10 years, congratulations for that milestone. That's incredible. And, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on my show and thanks for, yeah, you know, we, we all look to you as, as a as sort of an example of, of somebody who's, who's doing the content thing well. And, um, as I think about what we're trying to build here, you've been, super gracious, you know, even before we started recording this about, you know, equipment and things that, that I could invest in to sort of make my setup a little bit better. So I appreciate you being open with um, anything, man, with your experience you know and your, yeah, your expertise on that stuff. But I'm um, here for, for you anytime you need it, bro. You know, it. thanks bro. Well, this has been an absolute ball. I appreciate all your, your time and uh, look forward to sharing this one. Thanks Dylan so much. And uh, shout out to you and all you're doing with pillars, man. You're, you're, you're leading us into the next generation. And I really appreciate that you rock and Thanks. give my love to harmony too. Will do.
Okay, guys, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. It was super fun for me. Thanks so much to Ethan for being such an awesome guest. If you don't already, please do go subscribe to the Ginger Runner YouTube channel. I've got links in the show notes. You can watch the Summer of Wonder film that he put out in collaboration with myself and Caitlin Gerben and our main sponsor, The North Face. The director's cut is on Ethan's channel and the film that focused on Caitlin's journey is over on the North Face YouTube channel as well. Uh, I have links to Ethan's race, the Tiger Claw event, which I think is going to be taking place this fall outside of Seattle. An amazing, awesome, different type of running event I would highly recommend. I went as a spectator back in 2019 and uh, would love to put it on my calendar this fall if I can make it. And finally, I also linked to the Forest Fen Treasure Wikipedia page in case you guys want to go down that rabbit hole. It's actually pretty freaking interesting. I think you'll entertain yourself for a little while just perusing that and make maybe clicking through and finding out a little bit more about that uh, interesting internet subculture. Anyway, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Always a pleasure. We'll talk to you again soon. Love you. Bye.